This is Kim Hammer filling in for Dave Ellswick. Hope you're not too disappointed. Dave's out of town at a conference, and so I'll be filling in for him today. Got a pretty full two hours. We've got the Bible guys coming on from 7 to 8 o'clock. They'll be here to visit and to answer your questions. We'll have a dialogue, all things related to any of your biblical questions. But this morning, we're going to start off with Jim Legrone, uh, who is working on the ability or the uh, for the you know to work to defeat the marijuana initiative here in the state. And then after that, I've got uh, three lovely ladies that are going to be joining me online uh, to talk about the resource centers for women here in the state of Arkansas. I will tell you from 9 to 10 o'clock, I've got Dr. Kent Corso, who's been a guest on my show, KimHammerShow.com, on Saturdays here on 101.1 FM from noon until 1. This is Suicide Awareness Month, and so from 9 to 10, I've got Dr. Court. Uh, Kent Corso, who's going to be calling in all the way from uh, the East Coast. He's an expert in dealing with suicide, um, and I think it'll be beneficial uh, for you just to have the basic information that we'll be talking about again with September being Suicide Awareness Month. But right now, I want to welcome uh, to the uh, Dave Ellswick Show, Jim Legrone, who's a, a good friend of mine. Uh, we've worked together as chaplain for hospice, and Jim, thank you for joining me on the Dave Ellswick Show early in the morning. Yeah, and we've also been able to work a little bit on political things. So just a few. To you, sir. Yeah, you got a little just bit of a history working on the political stuff, don't you? <laughs> just a little bit. I've traveled the country and uh, worked for various organizations, faith-based and others, and uh, just had a great time uh, trying to help America make good decisions. Now we need to help Arkansas make a good decision. And that's on the subject of the marijuana. It's a it's an issue that is right at the forefront of all the voters, possibly. Uh, do you have the latest update as far as where we are with the Supreme Court and what they're uh, what the what they're making the decision on the ballots? Well, we don't know. Uh, the court uh, the court's going to do what the court is going to do, and so uh, we still don't know when that decision is coming. We expect it any day. Might come today. Might come Thursday. But. Uh, uh, no doubt by the end of September, but uh, we wish they go ahead and make up their mind. And what effect is that going to have uh, for those that may not be aware that the uh, the signatures that were gathered in order to put it on the ballot? Talk a little bit about the gathering of the signatures and why it's even an issue before the Supreme Court. Well, apparently those signatures, uh, were, the Secretary of State's office, as you are aware of, did not uh, – Approve that, authorize that. What's the right word that we're looking for here? They did not certify. Uh, they they pulled the certification correct, and so to me that should let you right there say, well, this doesn't count. But what the issue is before the court is whether or not that ballot title is confusing, and it's our contention that it is. It's not telling Arkansas everything that's in it. This thing is 11 pages long. Uh, uh, for you as a legislator, I don't know if you're aware of the senator, but uh, the legislature, according to this amendment, cannot regulate it. Cannot You cannot do taxes on it. You cannot control it. Uh, it removes any accountability from the medical marijuana industry. They don't have to report anything anymore to the state of Arkansas. It just uh, it takes it away from the people. If they want to change something in the law or you guys see something you want to do differently by law, you're not going to be able to do it. 
So uh, it's it's written by the marijuana industry for the marijuana industry, and they give them an uncontrollable monopoly on uh, what's going to happen. This is a dangerous drug. This is not your granddad's doobie out in California in the 60s. Well, for somebody to know what the term doobie means, you lived in the area where I mean, only those that live there probably know what that means. But anyway. Well, uh, so. that, uh, uh, that little marijuana cigarette, you know, I've had to study so much about this stuff. Uh, just one ounce gives you, on average, 85 different uh, those little marijuana cigarettes to smoke. Can you believe that? Just one ounce can go that far. And so you can buy your one ounce just as often as you can, you don't, as long as you don't have it on you. Uh, you know, as far as possession is concerned, then you add two and a half ounces that you get on mar- medical marijuana, and this thing is just going to explode across our state. They know that. That's why they've written the law. Uh, did you know you could locate these next to a children's home, a city park, a public school, a playground, homeless shelter? My favorite is drug rehab facility. They can go in there and work through their AA meeting or something like that, and then go next door and uh, buy their recreational uh, marijuana but they're going to have no more laws on this and it's not been a boon anywhere it goes because illegal trade will increase it never goes down go to any of the states that legalize this uh, because you know this is not the most honest industry Uh, senator can i mention one more thing uh, that just really cracks me up about this Five uh, percent or less, if you can own that, you and I could invest in one of these things. And there's no background check, no criminal background check on a guy that's owns part of medical or recreational marijuana dispensary. It makes no sense at all. I'll read you a statistic. I'm looking at a report I pulled up on a smart approach to marijuana and it, uh, about preventing another big tobacco. And it says the percentage of youth aged 12 through 17 years old using marijuana is declining faster in states where marijuana is not legal. And overall use is up in legal states where declining is non in non-legal states. According to a uniform survey of marijuana use conducted by the federal government across the states, the percentage of youth aged 12 to 17 years old using marijuana in the states where marijuana is legal was 7.7% versus 6.2 in non-legal states. So, you know, the indicator would be that in states where marijuana is not legal, there is less use by ages uh, 12 to 17, which I, I know if you provide alcohol to a youth under age, you know, there are, severe, there are, there are penalties and crimes that go. I wonder how it will be affecting uh, those that provide marijuana to those that are 12 to 17, because first thing I thought about is what's a 12 to 17-year-old doing with marijuana? Well, and they're going to get it from their home. Their their mom and dad have a party, uh, and they put out gummy bears that are laced with that and brownies and cookies and all of those things. I don't know about your kids, but my kids had a tendency to put their hand in the cookie jar when they weren't supposed to. What makes them think that they got a cookie jar full of marijuana cookies or a soft drink? Because this law removes any uh, restrictions at all on the THC which is the addictive part of that and the getting high part of that, there is no longer, maybe it was 4% in the 60s, but today, uh, if this is voted in in Arkansas, there's no limit. It'd be 99%. It'd be almost pure that way. Uh, uh, Just to give you a couple more statistics, folks like to talk about Colorado. 
marijuana-induced and involved children's suicides are up 140% since that. Marijuana-involved road deaths in Colorado, one in four since this passed. Uh, uh, I really, uh, the commercial that talks about supporting police officers, that's uh, very effective for folks because we all want to support the police. They don't tell you the way the law is written. Only 15% of the 10% tax revenue will go to 15 of the 10, which means about 1.5% of this. They're trying to designate for uh, policemen and drug courts, etc. cetera. Uh, listen, they set their own tax rate. How, uh, is there any industry out there, small businessman driving to work right now, wouldn't he like to be able to set his own tax rate to the state? You know, this is, as I mentioned a while ago, uh, Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. And I was just reading one of the pages off this, uh, off this uh, information sheet about mental health outcomes. And it says, furthermore, 2019 Colorado toxicology report showed the percentage of adolescent suicide victims testing positive for marijuana continues to increase. Between 2011 and 2013, 20.7% of the suicide victims between the ages of 10 and 17 tested positive for marijuana compared to 12.7 who tested positive for alcohol. So if you go back to that other sheet uh, that talked yeah. about the percentage of increase in uh, marijuana use by 12 to 17-year-olds in states where it's legal, you compare it against the number of the increase of suicides between the ages of 10 and 19. There's a direct correlation between states that legalize marijuana and the increased number of suicides in the 12 to 17 population. So I've got a question. Why would you bring anything into your state that's going to, by data, prove and show that the increase of rate of suicide among our youngest, most vulnerable population is going to increase? We're going to come back after a break, Jim. Hang on one second. I've got to go to my other guests. Sure. We'll be back here on the Dave Ellswick Show. This is Kim Hammer, Senator Kim Hammer, filling in for Dave Ellswick. Welcome back to the Dave Ellswick Show. This is Senator Kim Hammer filling in for Dave, who is out on a conference. And so uh, today I've got Jim Legrone. Uh, Jim, just a couple quick uh, more comments about uh, legalization of marijuana and your thoughts on it. The uh, one of the one of the uh, selling factors of legalizing marijuana is, as you mentioned a while ago, that it's going to you know produce some income to the police. However, the percentage of income that would be produced in order to help uh, police with salaries or whatever measured against the liability of the increase in arrest and the workload on the judicial system and the cost to the state overall. you want to comment on the comparison of the two? Sure, I can. And uh, once again, we'll go back up to Colorado. So let's just do that. For every $1 they receive in tax return and tax revenue from marijuana, they estimate it costs them $4.50 to deal with those issues. So actually, they're losing money. It's an amazing twist. Uh, that they're trying to do to us. And if you guys see this as a legislature and you say, well, we've got to raise taxes on this, you're not going to be able to uh, by law. It's just crazy. But they're spending uh, 450 for every $1 they gain. That is not a good, uh, you know, only the government can say that's good accounting. They can make money. You know, it's, uh, to you and I, that wouldn't be making it. 
All right. So let me ask you just real quick in one minute or less. So let's just say that the uh, state of Arkansas currently is generating, let's just say, $40 million in revenue from marijuana sales. And then you got to deduct all the expenses that come with it for the Department of Health, Department of Finance, uh, for the crime lab. Don't forget the crime lab over there. Right. All the total all the total expenses. If Arkansas was bringing in, say, around $39.3 million in revenue on marijuana sale uh, for all the fees, registration cards, designated caregiver registration card, all that stuff, would it then be a fair conclusion based upon what Colorado is experiencing that you take that, multiply it to the fourth, and you would have what the cost to the state is actually going to be? That's what their statistics say. Okay. So, and how do you reg? How do you uh, determine how much of a human life? Uh, what is one life that's destroyed by this? They even the marijuana industry admits that ten percent of people will become addicted. The people that like abortion on demand, sex changes, CRT, the people that are lined up anti-gun—they're the ones that want this to happen. They're the ones that want this to happen. Enough is enough. Arkansas doesn't need another drug problem. All right. Very good. You've been listening to Jim Legrone. Um, Jim, your capacity to be a authority to speak on this is what? Well, I work as a field director with the uh, Family Council Action Committee, which is the political arm of the Family Council. Very good. All right, Jim. I appreciate it very much. It's good to talk to you. Thanks, we'll get sir. together and visit. All right. Let's transition now to talk about um, let's talk about the uh, resource centers that are here in Arkansas. My guest uh, for the remainder of this hour are going to be Shelly Lewis, who is with the Arkansas Pregnancy Resource Center here in Little Rock. And I've got Donna Azell, who is with Caring Hearts of North Little Rock and Little Rock. And then I've got Janet Dixon, who is with New Beginning Pregnancy Centers in Benton. And ladies, thank you for joining me here on the Dave Ellswick Show this morning. Let's start off. First of all, uh, let me start off with you, uh, Janet. You're down at New Beginning Pregnancy Center in Benton. Uh, just talk about your program and what it is that you have to offer down there uh, to to the the community. And if you want to expand beyond somebody that maybe presents with a situation of being pregnant, what other resources do you offer? Okay. Um, yeah. First off, thanks for letting us be on here to tell about our program. Um, here in Benton, we are open three days a week and hoping to expand to a fourth day pretty soon. So we offer free pregnancy tests and ultrasounds that are um, limited OB ultrasounds, which means we can confirm pregnancy for the client, and which is super helpful for them to be able to go on and get on our state's Medicaid, pregnancy Medicaid program and also WIC, which is very valuable um, for our clients, and we love to resource them over to that, and the Department of Health likes to send them over to us for that confirmation, so it's a pretty good partnership. During that process, we get to introduce them to all of our other resources. Um, We have clothing, maternity clothing, and um, baby clothes, zero to 2T. So they can earn um, our fake money that we make, and so I'm saying that publicly, we counterfeit money and it's called baby bucks. And they earn baby bucks by doing good things for their family and for themselves, such as going to work or going signing up for WIC. Um, Also coming to our center, making an appointment to come to our center, they earn bucks just making an appointment and keeping the appointment, which is a good skill to have going to the doctor that kind of thing. So they spend their baby bucks on the things that we have, 
and um, those all those supplies are donated by individuals or churches or businesses and um, anyway we just have those available for them they come in we have volunteers who enjoy mentoring them most of our volunteers are older women who have already parented so we love to become friends with these young women and give them any advice that they want if they ask and it's really just a lot of fun for good relationships and good support all right shelly how about you up at the uh, arkansas resource pregnancy center here in little rock Yes, good morning. Thank you for having us on. You're welcome. I, I, love, being, I love being on here with my uh, friends, Donna and Janet. Um, we all work closely together to, um, to help our community because uh, we have the same passion and heart for uh, helping, helping women and, and families. Um, so just like Janet, uh, we provide the medical part of um, the, uh, the pregnancy resource, which is the, the pregnancy test and the limited OB ultrasounds. Uh, we also provide at our center, and um, we're open five days a week now, uh, we provide sexually transmitted infection testing and treatment. And we actually offer this as a standalone product. And I gotta give a shout out to Donna Zell. Uh, when she worked with our center, uh, she launched this, this particular service. And what this does is allows us to, to meet women um, before they are in a situation where they have an unplanned pregnancy to help give them really great um, resources, show them love ahead of time, and make sure that they know about us when that, that unplanned pregnancy occurs and hopefully speak some truth into their life so they start make healthier, making healthier choices so they don't have an unplanned pregnancy. Um, we also provide those, uh, uh, those connections within the community. Uh, and uh, new, this year, uh, new last year was uh, the abortion pill reversal treatment. Uh, and Donna, um, she may want to speak about that at some point, but um, she was with us at the time when we were able to help a young mother uh, save the life of her child with abortion pill reversal. And uh, so those are the medical services we provide. We also provide um, infant care, uh, parenting education as well. Uh, it's all free. Uh, just like Janet, they earn baby bucks and can come shop. And um, as you know, the, the um, you know, setting healthy boundaries and helping um, our clients understand um, how to earn something is really a great skill to have. Uh, and uh, this, this education and baby buck, uh, baby boutique program helps them to, um, to, to learn those healthy habits so that they can carry those on to their family. Um, now, of course, we have families in need that haven't had time to earn points yet. We're, we're happy to help them uh, get supplemented any way that, any way that we can. Uh, and a new program we're wanting to launch over the next year is um, more of a social work program where we stay with the client, help assess their needs ongoing, and make sure that the, the referrals that we are sending them to are getting them connected to are successful. Um, I'm, I'm, right now, uh, this is in kind of in a new phase, but we're calling it the Care Connection Program. I'm working on it. So if there's any volunteers out there that want to help with that and that are in the social working uh, profession, um, I'd certainly like to talk with them. The uh, I'll tell you what, we got to take a break here in just a second. So when we come back, Donna, I'm going to get to you and let you have the mic to talk about the resources that you have. Uh, real quick, in, in about a minute before we got to take a break, the, the Care Connection and what you're looking for um are, are they do they need to be licensed social workers or what's the qualification and skill set that they need to have 
No, they don't have to be uh, licensed social workers. It could be someone that's been in case management before in healthcare or in uh, other nonprofits. Uh, anyone that's worked in that profession or has knowledge in that profession, um, even uh, mental health counselors, um, could all be uh, good um, resources to help us uh, launch this program. Okay. All right. We're going to take a break here uh, on the Dave Ellsworth Show in just about a minute. I wanted to just uh, encourage you to stay on and listen. We're going to visit with these ladies the remainder of this hour. And then uh, at 7 o'clock, we're going to have the Bible guys in, and we'll talk about all the questions. So if you have any questions you want to email in that you want the Bible guys to answer, get those emailed in, if you would, so we can have those for the 7, 8 o'clock hour. And then uh, from 9 to 10, I'll be back on with Dr. Kent Corso. Uh, Dr. Kent Corso is a, uh expert in dealing with suicide. Uh, both from the recovery side of things, but also the prevention side of things. And with this being Suicide Prevention Month, uh, it'd be a good time for you to tune in and listen. And I would just say that about this, uh, or this about that, that if you, you may not think you know anybody, but on any given day, somebody can present to you that may be showing you signs that you're not even aware of. So I would encourage you to listen between 9 and 10 o'clock, and uh, we'll give you uh, some good tips on that. With that being said, this is Dave Ellswick Show. I'm Kim Hammer hosting for Dave today, and want you to come back here in just a minute after the break. Thank you. Welcome back to the Dave Ellswick Show. I'm Kim Hammer, State Senator, filling in for Dave, who's out of town on a conference. And for this uh, remaining portion of the hour, we've got Shelley Lewis, who's with the Arkansas Pregnancy Resource Center here in Little Rock. And then we got Donna Azell, who's with Caring Hearts with two locations in North Little Rock and Little Rock. And then Janet Dixon, who's with New Beginning Pregnancy Centers in Benton, which I know there's a network of pregnancy centers around the state. And I appreciate you three uh, calling in today to just share a little bit more about them because they are providing a valuable resource. And I know that the primary goal is, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but the primary goal is to uh, just provide to the needs of women who find themselves maybe in the situation being pregnant unexpectedly or they just need some guidance or support. But your your net is bigger than that in that it offers services outside of just that. So for just a second, let me ask you specifically, what are some of the services that you offer outside of that? And then, Donna, I'm going to come to you. Uh, well, in fact, Donna, let me come to you and talk about the services that you offer uh, maybe even outside the framework of just dealing with women who find themselves in a in a motherly way yeah so um to talk just a little bit more about those services to to pregnant women we also talk to them about their options about pregnancy because um we don't want to leave um the topic of abortion out of this so although abortion is illegal now in arkansas except for saving the life of the mother um, we still have women that are, you know, considering abortion, either going out of state or, you know, finding the abortion pill online um, illegally. So um, with that, that's a real fact that we deal with every day. And so we have women coming to us in that uh, decision-making process. And our goal is, you know, to educate them about every risk possibly that they could face um, should they choose abortion and to also just educate them on you know uh, the the decision uh, you know the option of uh, adoption um, that is something that there's a lot of misconceptions about adoption that we often get to clear up for them um, to paint a you know the real picture of adoption and, and what a gift that is 
um, to obviously the child that they're they're saving, but to the family uh, that has been waiting for a child. Because as we know, there's a lot more families waiting than there are babies available for adoption. Um, and then, you know, so as we're educating them to make an informed decision, we're encouraging them um, and preparing them to be the best parents possible. Um, so, you know, we offer, as they were mentioning, the parenting classes, uh, the, the, the pregnancy classes as well. And not only that, but we're, we're connecting them with a mentor. Um, so they have someone that is, um, that they're building a relationship with, that they trust, um, a woman that has probably been through um, a difficult time once in her life as well that can relate to her, you know, to really empower her. Um, so things that we're offering outside of that, so fatherhood that's a big deal that we don't talk about a lot and that's an area that really that we're looking to grow we need um obviously more fathers involved in families um culture these days that the father's often absent from not only the pregnancy decision but also when uh, when a woman does uh, decide to parent oftentimes fathers are absent from there as well so we are in the process right now of building a fatherhood program we have uh, several men that have come forward from our um, supporting churches that are interested and um, in training right now uh, to lead that up and we're looking for more men that would be willing to do that so we're looking um, not only to support that that woman, but the family. So we're, our goal is to build stronger families, just as Janet and Shelley was talking about as well. Um, we also offer Bible studies. Um, so the, uh, alongside the parenting classes where they do the Earn While You Learn, we also offer Bible studies um, to, to grow them in their, their faith. Um, we've actually seen many women come to faith um, this past um year we have 14 salvations alone and that that is enough to, to rejoice about so hey let me uh let me give a plug for something right here um you talk about trying to work with the dads to become um, better dads, and, and that's a little bit of a lead-in plug. A couple of weeks ago on the Kim Hammer Show, which is a show I host here on 101.1 FM, The Answer from noon until 1, or you can get it on the podcast if you can't listen during that time frame. Um, one of the focus points was about a program offered through TANF, which is called Better Dads. And mm-hmm. let me let me get with you all when we get off the, when we get off the show today, or I'll, I'll reach out to Janet and work through her. But... Uh, Better Dads may be a good uh, program for y'all to consider incorporating there because it teaches fathers uh, or to be fathers about how to be better dads, and it's the and it's the basic principles that sometimes we just need to be reminded of. And you can be a good dad, but there's always room to be a better dad. And if you've never been a dad, you want to be the best dad that you can be if you're willing to step up in that role. Because uh, just my personal opinion, a lot of the reasons we have the problems in society today, absent from the fact that Christ is being pushed out of the conversation, is that dads are not stepping up in their role uh, of being a leader in the home and being present in that family's life. Uh, do you find yeah. that to be a, a trend and a contributor to what you all have to deal with? Definitely. All right. Let me uh, let me let me also wanted wanted to do this with the time we've got. Everybody's got a reason for why they're involved in something. Everybody's got a story for why they are making the commitment, like you ladies are making for the resource centers that you you know represent. 
And so let me just give you the mic for a minute and would like to hear your story as far as what it is that got you motivated or what it is that got you. What is it that got you involved with the resource centers to make the investment? Because I know that um, I think, Donna, you you live in Hot Springs. Is that right? And drive all the way up to Little Rock every day. Have I got it right? Outside of Conway. Outside so, yeah, of Conway. All right. Yeah, it's about so, 15 minute drop. Yeah. So let me just open up the mic to whichever one of y'all want to go first. And I'll have to take a break, so I'll have to interrupt you. But just start telling your story about why you got involved to the level that you are. Yeah, I don't mind um, continuing on for, for a second. So this is on it. Um, so, yeah, um, I was trained as an OB nurse and was uh, in labor and delivery and worked in OB for years. Um, but my uh, passion, actually, for the Resource Center is because that's where I found um, my healing and my help when I needed it. So back in 2005, um, I was reaching out for help because of past abortion in my life and just was um, realizing that I needed healing from that. So that's when I became connected with Caring Hearts. Um, and went through a program called Save One. There's many uh, abortion uh, healing programs out there. That's one of them. Um, and from then, I started volunteering. I was trained to do ultrasounds and started volunteering doing ultrasounds for women considering abortion. Um, once you can, you know, once you have been healed from that in your life, you've uh, accepted forgiveness and forgave yourself. Uh, you want other women to experience that because there's many women, one in three women, not only in our community, but in our churches that have suffered from abortion and are living in silence and pain. And so that's where my passion comes from. It first was so that other women could find that healing, but then to help women realize if they made that decision for abortion, just what they may be, um, you know, the pain they may be in for the rest of their life. Let me ask you, do the resource centers offer support services to people like yourself that found your, you know, where you just needed healing? And and maybe, yeah. you know, even in the church setting or even in the best of settings, um, you know, people may not know where to go. They may not know who they can reach out to that they can trust, that if they tell them that, uh, that that wouldn't be used against them or, you know, that they would, you know, that might inhibit that relationship. So what services do you offer for those that have experienced abortion but maybe have never told anybody? Can they come to you, and is it a safe place? Is it a place where they can get some direction, some some resources? I'll let one of the other ladies talk for a minute. Um, So, um, Kim, yes, uh, at the Arkansas Pregnancy Resource Center, um, uh, we offer Save One, uh, which is a non-denominational spiritual healing um, format. It's a 12-week format. Um, But we also um, are connected to several other post-abortive retreat-style healings and and, um, weekly studies. So we are the place that um, a lot of women come to first um, because, one, they're either trying to express their uh, healing in some way and trying to volunteer or they just don't know where to go. Um, so, yes, I know at the Arkansas Pregnancy Resource Center that, that's something we're very passionate about. Um, we have women that come to us right after having an abortion or 20 years after having an abortion. Um, and uh, we, we want to make sure that when we say we love them on the front end, that we love them always. Shelly, I've got uh, I've got about four minutes before I got to take a break. What's your story that got you involved that you are pouring your energy into the Arkansas Pregnancy Resource Center? 
Yeah. Um, well, like Donna, I thought it was my um, a post-supportive experience that brought me here. But recently, Kim, um, I've uh, God gave me the wisdom to know that um, that my very life, um, from the time I was conceived, was intended to glorify Him in this uh, position. Um, you see, um, I, I was a um, I was born of incest and rape. And um, I lived with that knowledge since I was five years old, and it shadowed everything I did in my entire life, and, and in fact, led me to uh, having an abortion uh, in my teens. But um, recently, um, I realized that um, God's proof of His love for me was in every moment of my life from my very conception, and He intended for me to do this very thing at this very moment. For his glory and um, that's why I'm so very passionate about what we do and that's why I want to launch this care connection program because there were many many times that I went unnoticed and uncared for because somebody wasn't there walking alongside my mother and getting her connected to all the resources she need needed to escape the situation she was in and if I had only had that in my life in her life and I might not have suffered some of the things I suffered. But I'm so glad I got to suffer them so I can walk alongside other women with my open heart and compassion um, to help them find the things that they need to live um, the life God intended for them. Do you... Uh, that's powerful. That's, uh, yeah, that's powerful. Uh, the Let's do this. Um, let's go to... Um, sorry, that, that was just a little bit on the overwhelming side for me. So, Janet, let me ask you in a couple minutes as far as your personal story that got you involved. Okay. Um, yeah, I would say, Shelley, that was that was powerful. We could just stop yeah. and start you know, singing a song or something. I'm just praising God. Um, well, mine is, a, I guess, a little bit different. I was um, I felt a little call, not little, but a call to being a missionary when I was, like, in fifth grade. And then, um, you know, just life as a teenager and young adult, I started doing my own thing. And so I kind of just put that in the back of my mind and like, uh, well, I'm probably not going to ever get to do that or I'm not qualified or I'm not good enough. And um, so anyway, God put me into nursing and then I was able to um, get my master's degree and just kind of fell into women's health. And my specialty really was more preventive, and I, I became really, in, you know, involved in the schools with uh, programs that we used to call the abstinence programs, and I was the STD lady. And um, anyway, it's just um, been really, really neat to see all of my experiences as a nurse practitioner um, doing family planning and um, talking about that all of that to make full circle and now i'm actually getting to be that missionary i wanted to be in fifth grade and get to be in women's health too and so um there are some a lot of things that i feel unqualified for but I'm, i feel like shelly so well put you know just that god put me here at this time um and prepared me in all kinds of weird ways for this time to be the director at New Beginnings. And so it's just been kind of a wild journey, but um, I'm really happy to be where I am. I'm not post-abortive, but I did give someone money to have an abortion. So I think it would be surprising to know how many of us in the church have been involved with abortion and um, whether 
personally or in my case a little bit on the outside but still involved and that we have to just really accept that forgiveness from God for everything. All right, we need to take a break here on the Dave Ellswick Show. This is Kim Hammer, State Senator, filling in for Dave, who's out on a conference. We'll come back finish up the hour with three ladies representing the resource centers, and uh, let's finish up the hour with them, and we'll come back after the break. Hi, this is Kim Hammer, State Senator, filling in for Dave Ellswick here on the one, uh, Dave Ellswick Show, 101, 101.1 FM. I need a little more coffee. All right, we got about five, six minutes, so let me uh, give some attention to a couple things. Number one, uh, Shelly, is it you that's got a new resource center coming into Little Rock, or one of y'all do? That's Donna. That's- Donna, okay. Yeah. Yes. You can tell we rehearsed the show so well. All right, Donna, <laughs> talk about where your new center is real quick. Yeah, so uh, we just opened in May um, in La Rock, right next door to Planned Parenthood. So we are at 1515 Aldersgate Road um, in Little Rock. And so we intentionally, you know, bought the the property, you know, adjacent to Planned Parenthood to, to be that close to offer, you know, alternatives to abortion. Um, so that has just been a blessing. And, of course, you know, even once uh, Roe was overturned and um, women can no longer get abortion there, we still are serving that population and seeing uh, clients walk over um, needing um, STI services, needing free services, not being able to, you know, to afford um, uh, some of the services that are um, provided at Planned Parenthood. So, yeah, so we're in a great location, um, just eager to serve these women. I got a uh, survey yesterday from Planned Parenthood wanted me to fill it out as a um, up for re-election uh, so that I could get their endorsement. I'm, I'm going to send it back and say thanks, but no thanks. Um, so, but but the but the efforts are still out there to get women into states where that they can get abortions. Is that true? Yes, actually. Um, I um, was researching for my banquet that's coming up next next week and um, come across the Arkansas Times actually published on August 8th after it was overturned an article that navigated women on how to get the abortion pill and how to get an abortion now just in our you know just out there um, a navigation tool um, so definitely there there are a uh, those um associations that are really trying to help um women get get abortions all right and talk about y'all's fundraisers real quick i know there's a couple fundraisers out there so tell people about that how they can support because all that money helps you not only guide women but also focus on the you know let me reemphasize the the resources i know down there in benton when i went down and toured it the other day after uh, and we haven't even talked about the grant money that y'all are going to be receiving. Won't have time today to do that. But, you know, like, man, back there in the back, they've got diapers. they got a baby formula. They've got maternity outfits. they got baby outfits. They've got, I mean, it's like a real true resource center. So talk about the two fundraisers you've got coming up so people can know how to uh, help support it. And take about 30, 45 seconds each to do that. Uh, Caring Hearts, uh, we're having our fundraiser next week. It's our annual fundraisers on September 27th. And that's a Tuesday evening, uh, beginning at 7, and it is at the Doubletree downtown. Um, registration closes tomorrow. So if you would like to register, you can go online at um, chpregnancy.org, click our Donate button, and it'll take you to the events um, page where you can register. All right. And there's another one out there, too, isn't there? One of y'all? 
is, she- is Shelly uh, with the Arkansas Pregnancy Resource Center. Our banquet is called The Legacy of Life. It's on October 27th. Uh, so you still got plenty of time to register for that. And um, you can go to St. Joseph's Helpers, ARK.org forward slash Legacy of Life to register. It is a free, completely free event, uh, just like Donna's. Um, we want you to come enjoy a great evening. And uh, just a teaser, I will be sharing a fuller version of my story at that uh, at that time. So I would hope you'd come out and, and uh, support our center, um, but learn more about um, how you can help victims of rape and incest. All right. I'll tell you what. I'll get those up on my Facebook show or on my uh social media page uh, for the kimhammershow.com and we'll see if dave can get it up there too uh, so that y'all can uh, go get that information the last minute minute and a half i've got here's the one thing i want to stress because you've talked uh, on a couple issues a couple times this morning uh, about coming at this from a spiritual perspective but let's say somebody out there doesn't have a spiritual perspective let's just say they don't want to be preached to they don't want to be talked to about faith they just need resources uh, real quick, talk about the environment that somebody would walk into, because that's maybe part of the fear people might have is that they're going to be condemned, judged, or whatever when they walk into the, one of the resource centers. So in a minute or less, relieve people's mind about that. Sure. If you guys don't mind, I'll, I'll go ahead and um, start on this. Um, so with Arkansas Pregnancy Resource Center, we've been next door to uh, the only surgical abortion clinic um, for the last 35 years. Uh, we've been next door to a surgical abortion clinic. Uh, recently it closed, praise be to God, um, but our our whole stance had to be love first. Um, so we love first, and the gospel was shared through love, uh, and then when we had an opportunity, we uh, talked with them about the gospel. Um, but yes, our, our centers are set up in a clinical, our centers are set up in a clinical way so that um, they get the care they need first, because that's what Jesus did for us. He gave us the healing first, and then our faith followed. So um, that's, that's how we've always approached it, because not only our location, but we know that's the way Jesus wants us to reach people where they're at. Very good. All right, you've been listening to Dave Ellsworth Show. Kim Hammer, State Senator, has been your host today. Dave's out of town. We've had Shelley Lewis with Hartsaw Pregnancy Resource Center, Donna Ozell with Caring Hearts North Little Rock and Little Rock, and Janet Dixon with New Beginning Pregnancy Center. You don't have to wait for a fundraiser to support these organizations. I'll get you all back on again, and we can talk about further details, including the grants. I appreciate you all being on the Dave Ellswick Show. Coming back after the break, we got the Bible guys on. You can get your questions emailed in or call them in. We'll be glad to take them on air if you want to, and we'll be back after the break here on the Dave Ellswick Show on 101.1 FM, The Answer. Thank you for joining back here on the Dave Ellswick Show. This is Kim Hammer, State Senator, filling in for Dave this morning, out on a conference, getting educated, come back and just share all that knowledge and wisdom that he's out gathering up. So I encourage you to tune back in and listen at a later time. But today we've got the Bible guys on from 7 to 8 o'clock. And if you uh, would like to call in a question, uh, you can call into 501-823-0965, 501-823-0965. So uh, 
Billy, Steve, great to have you all on Thank the Dave Ellswood Show this morning. Always happy to be here. Yep. Yep. Y'all had a pretty good week. Sunday, pretty good worship service yeah, yeah. for you? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, very good. Saturday's for us. Saturday's for y'all. That's Sorry, right. my bad. I'm well, I was at both. Yeah, I think okay. say I, uh, it, it's an all-weekend-long sort of thing, right? Yeah, it's a Saturday did. and a Sunday, but uh, okay. our congregation specifically meets at 1 o'clock on Sunday afternoons. Yeah. So, or Sunday I, afternoons. I was at uh, the Sunday service as well talking about uh, the holidays <laughs> coming up and some of the studies that we've got going on. So it was a full weekend for, for me. Very good. Y'all get pretty good participation on your Saturday services? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we okay. do. All right. So what is it that y'all are preparing to talk about with the upcoming, you mentioned about the upcoming holidays, and I know there's some things relevant to the times going on. So what is it that y'all were well, the, talking about or sharing about? Uh, one thing about, it was a year ago, um, I've just been feeling like most of the problems that we have in, in society, it always stems back to the church, right? The church is supposed to be the voice and the conscience, if you will, of the of the country, of the place wherever the church lives, not just America, but wherever it's at, the people who who are living out the things of God. And there's been a, um, as the Word of God says, that the people perish for lack of knowledge, and also that in um, there was another time where God said that he would send a famine of the Word. And so I just felt like that what we've got going on today is people don't study and dig into the Word anymore. So yeah. we started doing a year-long study of going through the Bible, a year-long reading, uh, and then we also uh, uh, brought in a Wednesday night service to start going through um, a deeper study. And so we got a new study coming up uh, beginning in October um, from a group called First Roots of Zion. And it's a, um, it's a study. It's called the, the Beginning of Wisdom. And it takes us back to understanding the wisdom, the morality, the ethics, and all those things that you find in the Torah, in the first five books of Moses. And I, I, tell, I say it this way. <clears throat> Orthodox Jews and conservative Christianity see almost everything identically except for who Messiah is. Right. And so then the question becomes, how is it that people who don't know the Messiah, who don't have the Holy Ghost, don't have the New Testament, how is it that they have come to understand, uh, and, and how, or I should say it better to say it this way, how is it that we have the both basic same foundation? It, it appears that maybe all of that has been found in the Torah. Uh, and maybe that the apostles drew from that wisdom. And so we're going to go back and find those basic uh, morals and ethics and wisdom and wise principles that you can pull from the Torah because, unfortunately, too many people have the idea that the law is just a, a book of rituals and a book of what you can and cannot do without understanding the um, the morals and the ethics and the guides that are in it. And that's the we talked about that study. What's coming up, and then then we've got the the fall holy days uh, coming up. You know, and the Sunday Bible teaches. Yeah, I'm sorry. The, the Bible teaches that the law was written for the purpose of showing man's inability to get to God on the right. basis of his own good works that he needed that he needed another pathway forward other than being obedient to the law. Although that the law is there to provide, mm-hmm. you know, for the moral structure of society, if nothing right. else. I mean, and you know, that's one thing I think people don't maybe take a look at the Bible and consider is that the Bible is good. If you want a good, healthy, moral society mm-hmm. in order right. to raise a family, in order to have uh, a safe environment to walk down the streets in, in order to be able to have strong economic environment, uh, you know, just a, a good overall healthy environment, the Bible is the best place to go for that because it starts with God giving Moses, yep. okay, here's the laws you guys are going to live by if you want to get along right with me and along with each other. Yep. Thoughts on that, right, wrong? No, that's or? exactly it. The, I, I, I like to explain the covenants um, as the, the way God 
wanted to set up his kingdom. So he made a covenant. You, you walk through him and you see, you hear one about the Adamic, the uh, the covenant with Adam, which is, hey, you're man. Here's the earth. You you rule over it. Then he made another one with Noah, saying, hey, I won't do what I just did to destroy the earth since you guys messed that all up. Then he made one with Abraham and said, hey, I'm going to give you some land to your descendants. And then he made another one with Moses and Israel about how they are going to rule and live within that land. I shouldn't say rule, the rules that govern that land. And then he makes another covenant with David, which is going to be the Messiah will come through his heir. So now we have a king that governs over a certain specific land. And so all of the covenants had a purpose, and you've got to have structure. I was listening to a podcast yesterday where there's there's a rabbi, and he was talking about how important structure and order is and and even when we talk about things from a scientific standpoint about how god in in the book of genesis brought order from chaos mm-hmm. and it's the law of moses brings order in chaos and the reason in anything that does that you could argue that's what the purpose of our constitution was and we all know that it was based off a lot of the principles found in the scriptures but it brought order Right, And so why do we have so much chaos in our land today is because people aren't following that structure. They're not following the structure that was laid out by our government and the Constitution and not following the order and the structure that was laid out by God and his rules. And so we've got to have – you have to have rules. And there's a church – a lot of people in the church have thrown off that rule, have thrown off that governance and saying that we don't need law. All we need is the spirit. And so since we don't have law, we have chaos. That's why we have violence in the streets and everything, and it's just chaotic. Sorry, Billy, I've been talking about it. No, no. uh, I I would make the exact same point. Uh, The the reason this country uh, had been so blessed, and and I did use the word had uh, there, yeah, uh, had been so blessed and and had prospered and uh, conquered. Let's let's face it, we've conquered significant portions. We always turn around and give it back. That is our, the the nature of the heart of this country. Um, but the reason that has happened is because at our founding, our founding fathers looked around and went, "Okay, what is the model for creating a nation?" Mm-hmm. And they went, "Well, here's the model that God gave Israel." And, and the vast majority of – when you go look at those those founding documents and what you see is they continuously went back to the Word of God and mm-hmm. said this is the way God expected a country to be run. And as a result, we, we had 200 years of, of significant prosperity. And only when we started going, you know what? We don't need a God over us. We're, we're going to throw off those chains. Oh, my God, what a horrible statement. Only when we started doing that did we start this significant decline – um, to the point that, you know, you look around and it's, it's number one, we're, we're bankrupt. I mean, you know, right. very few people are, would make that statement that way, but this country is bankrupt. You know, 31, On multiple levels. Right. Right. Yeah, right. Morally, right. ethically, uh, and, and financially. You know, we talk about the 31 or 35 or 40, whatever it is, trillion dollar debt, but that doesn't even discuss the 300 trillion in, mm-hmm. in uh, debts we, we're going to owe at some point. Right. We're, we're bankrupt as a country, specifically financially but also and much more importantly morally we became we became financially bankrupt when we became more morally bankrupt uh about 60 or 70 years ago at this point so that um that generation that had to go to war uh, and had to face the the two greatest wars that we've seen came home and they were broken enough that the next generation did not learn mm. the lessons they had learned and decided to take a different path 
And as a result, this country has walked a road that we should never have walked, where we cast off morality, where we cast off rules. You know, I'll live my way. Well, I'm sorry, but your way is not God's way. Man's way is not God's way. Scripture is pretty clear about that. And as a result, we have bought into a bunch of lies um, that really have have bankrupted us, specifically morally. Yep. You know, and that's one thing you talk about those that came back, like from World War II. Um, I'll even go to the recent war, you know, that we've had in the Middle East. Those that have come back from seeing the carnage that they saw. Yeah changes the perspective of life i think to where they realize humanity their humanity and they realize what happens when chaos is introduced into the situation which we know satan is the author of chaos he's the author of confusion so his battle strategy is to introduce as much confusion as much strategy as much division as can be introduced in order to destroy something because a house divided against itself cannot stand and so for those like the World War Two, you know, when you see them respecting our flag, you know, respecting just respect, period. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, they have a different perspective than some that have never been there, nor do they have an appreciation for the accurate accounting of history right. as it should be right. taught that would bring into a lot of people's lives personally. Yeah. I wasn't there, but understand what you went through, or I, yeah. I at least have sympathy for what you went through. I think that whole mentality, that whole um, – uh, appreciation for what others has done have done is not in the picture yeah. yeah peace is not appreciated until you've experienced violence it really isn't um and we have unfortunately um through technology and a, a smaller and smaller military as we've gone fewer and fewer of us fortunately i said unfortunately i meant i meant fortunately fortunately the vast majority of us do not experience the sort of violence that our grandfathers uh, our fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers experienced um even in the way we handle modern warfare, uh, unless you happen to be a very small portion of the very small portion, uh, you're not experiencing that level of violence. We've, and we've become so soft. It, it is, unfortunately, um, kind of the historic nature of nations that eventually yeah. they become strong enough that they become weak, right? That we become so strong that it takes a super small percentage of people to maintain that until um, that percentage is no longer able to get it done, and um, that the nation as a whole devalues what those who have come before had to do, and and part of that is is changing history is is a matter of changing the language the, and the changing what were, we uh, ta- uh, teach. That's the other thing you were alluding to there is about the historical, and it's unfortunate that. Um, some of the bad spots in our nation's history seems to be the focal point, right? A 10 or 20% right. period of time of overall what this nation has done, what it has done for the world in many of the conflicts, but also what it has brought to the world. I mean, the vast majority of the technological advances and the things that we see were created in this nation right, right. during this period of time that we're talking about. And, yes, there were groups and, and segments of it that, that did some things that were that were bad and against the things of God. But at the same time, the reason we're, the people don't love this nation is because they've been told about the bad spots only and not the things that are uh, Well, and good. they've been taught lies about some That's of that, true. too. Um, I, I, some lies. They've been taught they've been taught an entire – It's been distorted. Cases, yeah. An entirely false version – of what our history really is. And instead of focusing on the, yeah, there were bad things, but look at these these men and women who went out and made those changes. They want to focus on what came before the changes. And it's like, look, that's, you know, that's not healthy. 
um, that that's like a that's like a cancer patient. Um, instead of focusing on the treatment, laying around in bed worrying about the the cancer and not doing anything about it, it's like, look, we we went out and we solved these problems, and it's only because of the political division yep. that certain groups want to create that they are focusing on the negative, and that does nobody any good. But if you know, you've got to teach history as history occurred in an accurate manner, good, right. bad, good, bad, or ugly. Just teach it the way it actually happened. But then you got to have a value system that counters yep. that that bad experience by saying this is what they did then and if it would have been handled like this the outcome could have been different or maybe could have been avoided altogether when satan attacks the value system of a country so that those bad experiences when they're looked upon are looked at through distorted views and and through maybe even distorted teaching then things don't align i think that's where we get what we've got today yeah Yeah, absolutely i mean god told israel teach your kids these things here are these you know remind them of what happened it wasn't so they could be reminded about the good it was so they could be reminded about the bad because you don't want to go down this road again all right got to take a break here on the dave ellswick show this is kim hammer state senator uh filling in for dave today i've got the bible guys in glad to have billy and steve and we'll be back after the break and if you want to call in 501-823-0965 we'll be glad to take your questions Welcome back to the Dave Ellswick Show. This is State Senator Kim Hammer filling in for Dave out of town on a conference. Got the Bible guys in. I got two out of three. Uh, got got the best of the two of the three. <laughs> Ooh, I wish he was listening. Well, he better be listening. Okay. I mean, you know, you know, if not, it, oh look, the phone's ringing. It might be him. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I got Billy and Steve in the in the studio. We're talking about uh, biblical applications to modern day problems. How about that? There you go. So we were talking about uh, some of the issues before, and I, I just kind of made a random list here. Let's just check down it because you know one one thing is. Is uh, God doesn't ignore an uncomfortable situation. Human right. tendency is to try to avoid conflict and you know run away from it or just you know stick your head in the sand. God never did that with any of the challenging issues that we're facing as a society. You know, He gave Moses the law. He said, "If you guys stick with this, we got everything good." You know, and I'm a lawmaker. Uh, I can't. You know, we run about two thousand plus bills a session. Wow. <laughs> you know, God did it in one short session with ten. And, you know, Ten Commandments. If everybody just followed the Ten Commandments, think about how much better society would be. Think about how much, you know, less you would pay in taxes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Think about all the problems that would be solved if everybody would just be obedient to the Ten Commandments. Right. Yeah. Um, And I'm kind of condemning myself in a way as a lawmaker. We pass all these laws that you could almost take back to every one of the Ten Commandments if you were to trace it back. These, this problem would be fixed if you just do one of these ten. Yep. Uh, and, well, and also, can you imagine? Um, this would be my my weekly jab at lawyers. Uh, what the Ten Commandments would look like if they were put together by a team of lawyers, <laughs> right? And all of the wording they wouldn't be so simple. You know, in, in the in the Hebrew, it literally says like you know, don't do not steal. It says lo steal no steal that's, that's all it right. says it's don't it steal says. it's really that simple uh but i'm sure that the you know if the lawyers got a hold of it each one of them would probably be two thousand words long to help describe what it means not to steal and and that would probably be the uh uh <laughs> would be as many uh bills if they didn't have to add so many words if, and if we would just do those simple things you know god want god uh, people want to make god out to be complicated really he's pretty simple he is. Yeah. you know he's a do a do and don't black and white kind of guy and um uh, so if we could get back to that. Yep. But 
in the meantime, until we do get back to that, right. let's take on some uh, modern-day topics that are kind of you know pushing people's button. Uh, talked about debt a while ago. If we were to do it God's way, how would it be that yeah. we would not be in the debt situation we are as a nation? Yep. Anybody who is in debt, the Bible says, is a slave. Yep. 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 Because yep. You, you are subservient to whoever uh, lent you the money. And we are servants, slaves. It's the same word in Hebrew. Uh, just depends on where your position is on that. Right. Um, if we are slaveholders to whoever holds the mortgage of our house, or in, in the case of the nation, uh, whoever we've borrowed the money from, we are subservient to them, and we cannot do the things that we need to do. Uh, and so, if we followed God's way, we would only—I don't know—spend what we have to spend. What? Right? No. We would not say it ain't so. In debt, right? Our, our our credit card economy wouldn't exist. Is that what you're telling? Right. Oh wow! Isn't that interesting? And we might might be able to uh, live some happier, healthier lives. And if you got a job you truly hate, and you're not, you know, up to your eyeballs in debt, you might be able to go. Hey, maybe this isn't the job for me, and go find something better. Yep. Oh wait, I'm sorry. We are a balanced budget state. Can you imagine what would happen if they could ever get a bill passed at the national level that we had right. to be a balanced budget nation, budget right. neutral? It'll, it'll never happen, though, because there's too much money sloshing around up there for people to stick their hands in. So Yeah, yeah, and that's why I, what I said off the air about the lack of integrity and all that. It's just because – What are your hot buttons? The, the, the lack of integrity in people who are being um, – um, Slowful. Who don't work, right? <clears throat> so – we have a whole. The only reason we have the problem that we have today is because we have people who went up there. That's not the only reason. Besides the moral and ethical I was, stuff, I was yeah, already the, leaning yeah, into the Michael. Not, Michael not, all, not the only problem, but when you have people who have forgotten that the reason they are where they are at is they are there to serve. Right. They are there to represent, and they are not there to fill their own pockets, to take yeah. care of their own constituents to the point where they get their own kickbacks. And that's the reason right. that we, we have all the debt is because they just really want to spend. But I also I also point the mirror back at the people. Yep. The people have allowed that to happen because yep. they won't do um, what needs to be done to stop all that spending. They like all of the, the things yep. that they get by spending extra. And so if a real, true, and honest – political leader stood up and said, hey, we can fix this, but here's what's going to have to happen. We're going to have to cut the budget about 30% just to, so we can pay our own bills and maybe pay back our debt. Uh, but here's what you're going to lose, and the people would just go, oh, no, we can't have that. Right. Yeah, just keep borrowing it, and then we'll let our kids pay for it. I mean, it's the people as much as it is the crooks that are lying in their own pockets. It's, it's one of those things that I try to teach my children, and that is that somehow we, we, kicked, we kicked out a king and then turned around over the course of a couple hundred years and created a new aristocracy. We created a new ruling class. We, we have kings. Um, we, we get rid of them every four to eight years, but we created an entire ruling class of people that um, no longer truly answer to the people. They just don't. Uh, they come home, they say some nice things, and then they go back to their castles uh, in, in D.C. and basically ignore us until it is time for another election. Right. And then they come back and make a bunch of promises, and we all know, right? Uh, lawyers and politicians, don't trust a word out of either mouth. Hey, hey, Apologies hey. to you. <laughs> yeah. that, okay. that would be on a national level. Right. Uh, We're talking national. Uh, and, it's it's around here, too. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I try to be gentle. Uh, I, I've got uncles who... Uh, who served in the House here in Arkansas back in the day. So I, I try to be gentle to local politicians as best as possible. Uh, but when it comes to national politics, I, it, but it's it is. The, this the thing. It always, the reason I say it comes back to the people is because the reason <clears throat> that what happened to Jesus was done by the leaders. It was right. not done by the people. Right, right. And so the people were following. He had tens of thousands of people 
that were following him, but it was the leaders who did not want to accept who he was. And, and, and were the changes that he wanted to bring. Correct. Right. Correct. And, and why did they not want to follow him? Because it would have cost them their power. It would have cost them their power. They would have had to power. surrender their power. Yep. yep. And that's, that's the, it's the same okay. spirit. But also, much is given, much is required. So the people that are in the, in the positions, in the, the position that you sit in in the state, you're going to be held to a higher account because yep. you sit in a position of leadership and authority o- over a state. And okay. the same thing is true on a national level right, yep. in a much larger way. All right. Well, let me tell you who controls the power right now. Heidi. And Heidi is giving me the signal <laughs> I see her that back we are us. coming down to the count. This is Kim Hammer hosting for Dave Ellswick uh, here on 101.1 FM. Come back after the break. Welcome back to the Dave Ellswick Show. Kim Hammer, State Senator, hosting for Dave today out on a conference. I've got the Bible guys in for this hour. I've got Billy and Steve here, and I appreciate you guys joining me, having a little bit of a discussion about some modern-day problems, a little bit about uh, how God doesn't ignore the uncomfortable subjects. People just doesn't. People just don't like to hear the uncomfortable answers that God gives. Right, right. And, and I think that's kind of what we're boiling down to as a society. God's got a solution for these problems. The question is, do you want to be obedient? And you know, dealing with a society that is becoming more and more rebellious toward authority yeah. only stands to reason why people are rebellious toward the authority of God. Nobody really wants to put themselves under submission yep. to God, who's got the answers to the problems. Talked a little bit about debt. Uh, let's run down the line and uh, let's talk about let's talk about slavery for a minute. Okay. Uh, you know, because that's that's kind of a topic that rolls around every once in a while. You got you know things being taught. You know debatable being taught in school or not it's out there crt and all that kind of stuff oh, yeah. you know god never god never backed away from the subject of slavery because he didn't back away from any problem that man was going to create because once adam and eve screwed it up for all of us he knew these problems were going to be coming in your thoughts about god's subject of <clears throat> slavery and 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 how it was addressed and what he said it did not go away with the emancipation Okay. <laughs> what I mean by that is nothing of man is going to solve it's that not, problem. It's not. Yeah. But we did the right thing after a, a battle and in the midst of a battle, and we uh, changed what is still a common practice in many parts of the world today. And yes, God addressed it in the Word of God. And some, even our former president, made it appear that God was condoning. And what a lot of people don't realize is when God was given the commandments to Moses. He said, hey, you're going to see certain things that the other cultures do. Well, I don't want you to do it like them. Right. right. Even simple things like when they would boil a kid in its mother's milk, right? We look at that commandment and go, well, that's that would kind be of a goat before anybody yeah, yeah, gets not a child. about children. <laughs> <laughs> Thank that's you funny. for that Thank, clarification. Yeah, thanks for that clarification. <clears throat> but it was, hey, this is one of the things that the nations do. I don't want you to do these things like them. And then God addressed the issue of slavery. Because it's not that he, he knew that there was it wasn't going away. But what he said to Israel, hey, when you have slaves, you are going to treat them, and he lists how they are to be treated. And, by the way, there was a way of release for them at the end of the seventh year. Yep. So they were not to be treated like the nations treated them, but they were to treat them better and give them a day of rest. Right, right. right. <clears throat> they weren't allowed to beat them. They weren't allowed to do certain things. Uh, and so, you know, God addressed that situation. God addressed the situation of divorce, right? It's not his ideal plan. He goes, but, hey, if you got to do it, it's be- and obviously Jesus later clarified when he said it's because the hardness of your heart is why God gave that command. Right. And you could argue that was the same reason he had to give laws about slavery is because people weren't going to change, but he's going to hold them accountable how they were going to do certain things that were done within cultures and within society. Right. You know, and, and so that was kind of one of the things we were alluding to at the beginning was that this nation was not only was it people treat it that what happened with the slavery as horrific as it was as we were the creators of it 
and we weren't. But what we were the creators of was beginning the ball rolling for ending it. Right. right? Because right. there were many nations that followed suit yeah. after we brought it to its end. Yeah. And the you have to understand that biblical slavery is a radically different Correct. thing than, than the slavery that we have in our minds based on American culture and American history. Slavery, biblical slavery. So let's say that somehow um, Steve and I were had done business together and suddenly I found myself in a position. My farm burned down and I owe Steve a half a million dollars, a significant amount of money. And I come to him and go, hey, look, I, I, there's no way I'm going to be able. My farm burned down. My, my barns are gone. My, my produce is all gone. Uh, I, I'm never going to be able to raise that half a million dollars. Um, I will become your servant. Now, here's the great thing about what the Bible said. That is not a permanent position mm-hmm. between us. That is a seven-year contract at maximum uh, right. and, and until A, that debt is forgiven, and B, I am set free. So that is really a contract that says, hey, I owe you money, and I can't come up with the money, so I'm going to work for you until I've worked off my debt. And by the way, God said that could never be more than seven years. And by the way, and and I'm going to insert the terms as to how I'm going to treat you like a human being instead of like a possession. Correct. Correct. And what we did in this nation was not the biblical model, and that's why we paid a heavy price because of the sin of what happened. So do you think that is part of the reason why it is a tool of division on Satan's part today? Because it wasn't started right, wasn't handled right, but we did make effort to make it right. And we have to understand that we inherited that system, right? It's not something we invented when we got here. Uh, We we inherited that, and and our earliest founding documents, I know what what the left is teaching right now, that we are the, the greatest evil that ever existed. But you go look at our founding documents and we right from the very beginning we're talking about how do we get rid of this how do we solve this most unhuman thing that that is going on in the world how do we get rid of slavery and and we understood at the time look you can't that's not a there are just some band-aids you can't pull off all at once yeah. if you were to try to if you were to decide tomorrow we're going to pay off the national debt you can't do it you cannot get it done in a single day and it took a couple of generations it took several generations before we could go from where we were at to where we wanted to be and guess what that is the the story of every person's life you started off in one place and you're headed to another so it is with a nation. A nation starts off in one place and you're headed to another. The only hope is that we are walking a moral and ethical path that has been ordained by God, and therefore we're walking to something better, not something worse. Yeah. All right. So Solomon used slaves yep. to build the temple. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they were, they were foreigners in the land. Uh, I forgot the number, like 185,000. Uh, you know, 3,800 of them were uh, the the supervisors. They broke them up in the quarries, and, you know, others went into the woods to cut the woods and everything. Right, wrong, or what was a – give me a comparison, because well, Solomon them, used them to build the temple. Well, he did, but they, most of them were what Billy was talking about. They were the indentured servants. It's not that they went necessarily and captured them from other lands and brought them right. there for that purpose, uh, but almost contact, contractually, you know, almost like a wage, if it, you will. And I started a moment ago to go, hey, you know what? It's not a lot different than what you're doing right now. You owe money to somebody and you're working a job. That was essentially what slavery, quote unquote, looked like. You've indentured yourself to whoever it is that you owe the money to. And it was, remember, and one thing you can't compare, when God told Israel to go in and take the land, we cannot compare how we see things modernly and then what God said to do to a people that was in that land that he gave to the people of Israel. So. Most of those people were just conquered and then given a chance to become part of Israel, and some of it was just through servanthood. 
So it wasn't that they captured him, put him in chains, and then gave him a, a, yeah. a hammer and a chisel and said, go build this. Uh, it was um, uh, done basically the way I was saying. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, we'll get to the temple in a second because we've, we've brought that up because there's a movement yeah. about the temple, and, and we'll come back into that in a little bit. But I want to I hit on one subject also about, you know, the Bible's perspective on dealing with it uh, because, you know, as they're showing on, you know, Fox News this morning down in New Orleans, they're not sure they can protect the citizens. You know, you go up to Chicago. Yeah. I, I wouldn't go to Chicago for nothing. I'm a no. Cubs fan, but I'll watch it on TV. There's no way I'd go up to Chicago right now. Right. Uh, there are certain pockets in this nation that are just becoming unsafe to travel. You might be safer. And I've been to Israel. I felt safer in Israel back yeah. in 85. Oh, yeah. Because every corner you stood on, there was somebody there with a, you know, with a gun to take care of you. Mm. Use the gun in the right way. So what about the Bible and what it says about crime? And, you know, what's the appropriate measures that are given to us biblically in order to help get our crime rate under control? What would you all say from biblical examples? Uh, Swiftly and severely. <laughs> right. <Okay. laughs> right. It really is. And the um, let's not go to the big one. Let's not talk about murder yet. But first, let's talk about simple things like stealing. That if you were to steal something from somebody, let's use in a modern example of a car. Um, you, The thief had to buy you five cars in return. So if you stole a sheep, right, the, the, Bible, the Bible gave the example is you had to return him four or five, depending on which the amount of the animal or whatever it was. Uh, if you kidnapped a person, you were put to death, right? So there were certain crimes that once uh, you were convicted, the punishment was swift. And if you had to pay somebody back five Cadillacs, right, you would probably think twice about stealing one Cadillac the next time you found yourself in a position – to steal a Cadillac Mercedes or whatever, you know, or a horse, um, you know, and I think that would be, you know, restitution would be a great principle to get into people's lives that you got to pay back. Not only give what you stole, but you got to give in addition to, and instead of this idea of just, well, we're just going to put you in these nice little housing units with, you know, cable live feed and three squares a day, and it's, yeah. it's, it's there's no... And, and before anybody judges us too hard, right. uh, the, the Steve and I both uh, have spent a tremendous amount of time uh, preaching in prisons, so we are certainly familiar with, with what that situation looks like, and, and we also understand that uh, a bunch of those guys uh, come from backgrounds that didn't leave them a lot of options, but that's part of the problem, right? We've mm-hmm. become morally bankrupt enough that we allow that sort of thing to happen uh, when you don't punish criminal criminals you incentivize criminal behavior yep. and and uh, it we now a couple of generations where we just don't bother to punish criminals if there are no consequences for one's actions they will never change and that's right. really the biblical principle that god's laying out anytime you do there's going to be a consequence for your action and, and since we have taken away consequence except for, well, hey, go down here and, and hang out in this building for five years, and we're going to feed you three squares a day. And you're gonna, not only that, you're going to have Internet soon, right? That's where they're getting to the place where they already got email, right? And then they got five or six TVs spread out all over the place. And so we're just hanging out. So what's, this incentivizes me from wanting to steal further again. Yeah, and, and, and when I make that statement that we don't punish criminals, I was looking at a Fox News morning brief the sort of thing this morning and one of the candidates for i think for governor of one of the states and i don't remember who it was at this point had to back off of his statement that senator from pennsylvania was it uh well we're just going to release everyone who um has been convicted of second degree murder or less 
Well, no, wait a minute. Those are murderers. I mean, right. it's second yeah. degree, but that's murder. If you really believe that, and I've got to wrap it up, but if you really believe that, give me your home address because right. when we release them, we're dropping them off on your doorstep right. in your yeah. neighborhood. That doesn't seem to work out so well as we see on other platforms either that right. are occurring right now. It all sounds good until they show up in your neighborhood yep. and then your tone changes, which means you probably didn't have a good solution in the first place. Right. Yep. All right, got to take a break here on the uh, Dave Ellswick Show. Got the Bible guys in. We're going to come back. Let's talk about the temple and a movement that's kind of going on uh, and how it relates to what's happening in the world today. We'll come back here on the Dave Ellswick Show after the break. Welcome back to the Dave Ellsworth Show. Kim Hammer, State Senator, filling in for Dave off on a conference. We've got the Bible guys in, which is Billy and Steve. been talking about some modern-day issues and what the Bible has to say about it, but we're going to kind of transition toward one thing I think that majority people, hopefully, are looking for is the um, is the rapture of the end times. A lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of buzz about the end time. In fact, uh, next week I'm going to be hosting uh, for Dave one day, and I'll tell you what I'd like to do. Just go ahead and get it out there so you can kind of be you know, preparing your mindset for it. About the tribulation, is it a pre, mid, or a post uh, exit out of here? Mm-hmm. And, you know, people can have different ideas about it, take different positions on it. The reality is whenever the Lord says come, we're all going. Right. You know, We'll find out who's right when we get there as long as we're there. Right. We'll fix it after the fact. But and, and in that particular moment, I don't think any of us will care that no. we were right or wrong. So no. I, I'm when, just hungry enough to poke you on the way yeah. up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the ones that are going to care are the ones that look around and realize they got Still, left. They're the ones yeah. that are going to care. So yeah. uh, we'll talk about that next week on the Bible, yeah. guys, when I'm in here hosting about the rapture. You know, is it is it uh, you know before the tribulation, middle of the tribulation into the tribulation and in the meantime uh you know there are folks that are kind of got this idea uh that they need to reestablish the temple and the mm-hmm. sacrificial mm-hmm. worship system that was you know in place in the old testament talk about that for a little bit because that is kind of a movement among some out there and mm-hmm. what are what are the dangers of that what are the positives just talk about it for a second well it, it, it always gets stirred up um and i know there's some people out there that any believers that are listening know anything you hear the catchphrase the red heifers right right and so every few years and this has been going back 20 30 years probably you know that um that in order for a temple to be rebuilt they have to have a red heifer for the ritual impurity uh, for anybody that's touched a, a dead body um anybody that's unclean the priest be able to go in and do what they do and because of the vast majority of the end times views that people have are that there is going to be a literal, physical, rebuilt temple for the Antichrist to kind of walk into and to, if you will, use the term rule and reign from. So because of how people interpret those scriptures about the end, they they go, we have to have these red heifers in order to get that temple back up to prepare for the Anti-Messiah. So in the past, people have been excited uh, about this possibility because that means we're getting close to yeah. the end times, the temple's about to be rebuilt, the anti-Messiah's about to reveal himself, we're about to walk into that period of time. Well, now there's been a group of people, and, it, and as far as I know, it's mainly within some of the circles that Billy and I run, that they're excited to see the temple rebuilt because they want to see the reinstitution of the actual sacrificial system. They want to see um, blood sacrifices again. They want to see this whole system. And it, it really troubles me uh, in, a, in a big way because they, they have missed the whole purpose for what Messiah came to do. Right. I mean, you, can't, you can't read certain scriptures like in the book of Hebrews in that where it talks about how he paid uh, that price once and for all, how he became the high priest, how he offered himself uh, for our sins. Even going back into the book of Isaiah in chapter 53, when it was the prophecy about the coming of the Messiah, it says his soul would be an offering for sin. And so I... I 
we we talk about all the time that we could see how in a, in a millennial period of time when Jesus is back, how there could be grain offerings and things like yep, that when yep. people are living in a peaceful time when they're when they're getting their harvest and they go and that that's something that can be talked about. But for people to be excited about the possibility of offering blood again seems to be especially for sin. Right, yeah, right. One for of those, sin. One of those blood offerings is for sin, and I'm sorry, um, the the offering that was required for that was taken care of a couple thousand years ago. Yep. So um, I, I just it, it I don't understand people who think um, or who are excited by the fact that they're going to get the opportunity because I know people who if yep. the if the temple were rebuilt tomorrow they'd be on a plane going I'm gonna go get my sacrifice done. Yep. Um, your sacrifice is done. Period. Yep. Amen. And that that drives men to look to man for yep. the solution of a problem that man created, which is a revolving door that you never get out of right. if that's your approach. Right. Yep. Um, so go back a little bit deeper. Why did God set up the sacrificial system in the and, first place? Man, it's weird. As I was getting ready to say, it was like in my head. <laughs> yeah, well, ESPN thoughts. But that's anyway. right. So he, um, um, when he first showed Moses, he said to build it according to the pattern that you were shown on the mountain. And then the, the writer of the book of Hebrews quotes that scripture. That the that the tabernacle and then then eventually the temple, the whole Levitical system, the Ark of the Covenant, all of these things were given based off the pattern of what Moses saw in the heavens. And so it was an earthly practice and representation of what was going to be done and what is being done in the heavens. Right. And what Jesus came to ultimately do was to be that ultimate sacrifice, that pure lamb without spot, without blemish, without wrinkle, without anything, who voluntarily offered himself for our sins on behalf of that system that was established. And so I, when that system was established based on the heavenly model, why would we want to then ignore the heavenly model and going back to do right. what the earthly model said? You know, I just I, – I can't – there's many things that I can see both sides of any argument. I cannot, as yep, many times as I've tried to look at the other side of that one, I cannot look at the other side of that one and think that people are excited. That's like somebody being cured from a disease and then want to get back into the disease so they can be cured again. Right. I mean, that, that's just that's that's, well, that's screwed up thinking and, is and what that is. And beyond that, uh, I am concerned for the souls of those who would do that, uh, who would go and participate in that sort of thing. Um, to me, it is – a form of rejection of the Messiah, yeah. and look when, once you have once you have been introduced and followed the Messiah to reject him after that um, is super dangerous. There's a verse um, in uh, the book of Hebrews chapter ten, and if you just read it on its surface, it looks like it's talking about people who have rejected Jesus, and it says that um, it says on the law of Moses uh, on the on uh, in the law of Moses that those who, by two or three witnesses, are held account for what they do. And then he goes on to say, of how much worse punishment will it be for those who have taken the blood of the covenant and trampled underfoot the blood of the Messiah? And what people miss on that is they think it's just talking about somebody who's just backslidden and who just went back to things the world. Context was he was actually addressing people who were going back to the sacrificial system. Yeah. These were people that were getting a lot of pressure from the Romans, and they had they decided to go back to the, the sacrificial system. That's the context of that verse. And that's why when people are saying, hey, we need to go back and get, we need to get ready for this, I'm going, man, you need to really think about what you're talking about here. Yeah. But uh, what pressure was Rome putting on them to go back? So, well, because of the persecution that was becoming onto the believers. So the the Jews were not being persecuted <clears throat> as much. 
uh, because they were an accepted religion within Rome. Right. But when the when the Christians were coming out of Judaism, and they the, they were saying, "You guys are different. You're not like the Jews." So when the persecution came to the Christians, they went back. Some of them went back into Judaism because there was safety to avoid there. the persecution. Yeah. yeah, and so they would go back to that system so to avoid the persecution, and that's what the context of that was. Man put his hands to the plow and look his back is not fit for the kingdom That's of right. God. Right. So we'll pick up on this topic when we come back next week. I got you guys in here and we'll talk about the rapture. Uh, just say this one point: if Christ washes away your sins, He washes them away forever. That's right. Amen. You don't have to revert back to a system that was proven to be inadequate. Christ is adequate to give you forgiveness of your sins by asking Him to forgive you, Amen. give you a gift that He paid for on the cross of Calvary, debt paid in full. Amen. You don't have to go back in. All right, guys, I appreciate you being here on the yeah, Dave Ellsworth Show. Sure. Kim Hammer, State Senator. I'll be back at 9. I've got Dr. Kent Corso coming on. It is uh, Suicide Awareness Month. We're going to talk about uh, suicide prevention and suicide awareness. And we'll talk about it in a positive sense, but we'll be realistic, too. Uh, something you may want to tune in. If nothing else, you'll be equipped to recognize uh, other people that may be going through it, thinking about it that you're not even aware of. So come on back at 9 o'clock and rejoin me here on the Dave Ellsworth Show on 101.1 FM, The Answer. Hammer State Senator filling in for Dave Ellswick, who's out on a conference. So thank you for joining me for the next hour. We're going to put a focus on suicide awareness because this is Suicide Awareness Month here in uh, the month of September. I know some of you may be uncomfortable talking about that. Some of you may even feel like that doesn't apply to you because you're not thinking about it. You don't know anybody that's experienced suicide or that's been impacted by suicide. But the reality is it may be around you and you don't even know it. And one of the things I would like to do is just participate in raising the awareness of suicide and specifically suicide prevention, uh, not just because it's a month where we stop to put special emphasis on it, but because it's something that goes around 12 months out of the year. And one of the things I think that we need to be doing or that we need to do is to raise the awareness so that we can be more sensitive to it, but also so that we can be equipped to deal with it and help make that conversation happen today. I invited a guest who who's been on the Kim Hammer Show, show that I sponsor here on 101.1 FM, The Answer, on Saturdays from noon until 1. Uh, I've had this gentleman, Dr. Kent Corso, on. He is a licensed clinical health psychologist and board-certified behavioral uh, analysis who's worked in multiple disciplinary academic and medical settings for the last 15 years. Uh, And he has specific areas of expertise in the area of suicide. So, Kent, I appreciate you joining me here on the Dave Ellswick Show this morning. Glad to be here with you, sir. Happy to help. Thank you very much. Well, let's kind of get into it because I've got an hour and, you know, we got a lot of material that we could cover within that hour. Let me start off with just this question. How does the thought of suicide get into one's head in the first place? 
Suicide comes to mind uh, for many people. Uh, in fact, we see about 48,000 suicides per year in America, and it those are just the deaths by suicide. It comes to many, many, many more people's minds. So let's just start there with some numbers here. Many, many people have thought about suicide once in their lives, but only a very small percentage of them actually attempt, and an even smaller percentage will actually die by suicide. And it's just part of the, the human problem-solving process. In other words, when people come into contact with a circumstance in life or a series of circumstances, stressors, if it seems hopeless, if it seems like too much to handle, they think of ways to escape. And one of those ways to escape, of course, is to end one's life. And, and let me back up, because one thing I didn't note in your, you know, uh, talking about your credentials, uh, share with the folks with regards to what you specialize in and why it makes it, you know, valuable that you're on the show today. So I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, I'm a board-certified behavior analyst, and I'm also a suicidologist, which is someone who specializes in the uh, study and reduction of suicide. I should also back up, and one, one caveat is that if we're really going to uh, have a valuable conversation about suicide prevention, we need to have a very direct one. It needs to be very clear and very frank. Uh, so what this means is if you are uh, have experienced something like this, if you have lived experience, a family member, a friend, a loved one who's died by suicide, if you're triggered, please take care of yourself first. We just want to give people a heads up that we will have a very um, honest and direct conversation about that. And is that not part of the problem is that for years people have kind of tap danced around the subject matter either because – and well, let me, let me back up. First of all, it seems like historically this is a subject matter that a lot of people have just kind of avoided uh, for whatever reasons. Am I right or wrong in that perception? That's correct, sir. So people uh, felt shame about their own – felt ashamed of family members who have died by suicide, talked about suicide, attempted suicide, and there's a lot of stigma attached to this issue. And uh, in the, th that is one of the biggest barriers to people seeking help, is they are ashamed to come forward. Are, are people afraid to admit that they might have these thoughts in fear of what they don't know? They know they've got it. But it's kind of like taking a lid off something. You know, once you take the lid off, whatever's inside is going to come out. Kind of like one of those cans, you know, that has the uh, exploding device on the inside, the little <laughs> plastic worm. You know, when you pull that lid off, you better be ready because what's coming out is coming out. Right. Yeah, that's part of it. That's part of it. So, so when someone feels suicidal or thinks of suicide for the first time, it's, it's pretty foreign. It's not familiar to them. And they judge themselves. They worry that uh, since this is unfamiliar territory, they don't know what they might do or they don't know how things will turn out. And it can be very frightening. Um, so there's that piece of it, that it's, that it's un uncharted territory. The other aspect of it is that they worry how others will judge them or treat them, uh, whether people will just call the police, uh, call 911. Sometimes in rural areas, the police assist with lots of EMS calls and things like welfare checks to people's residents. So th there's a lot of fear of the unknown that 
saying it at work, will that get me fired? Will that lead my boss to have less uh, faith in me, less less confidence in my ability to perform and do my job? So all sorts of different um, deterrents here. And, and let's be honest, some of these suicidal folks are parents, and maybe they don't want their children to sort of know because it maybe sets a bad example or might lead their child to become suicidal. So any different angle we can think on this is pretty fair game. The, the difference between thinking about death and thinking about suicide, I was listening to a conversation within the last week, and that was one of the thoughts that was brought up is, is it unnatural to think about death, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're thinking about suicide. And how do you differentiate between the two so that you know, you can you can be comfortable talking about death, but doesn't necessarily indicate that you're thinking about suicide. So that's a great point, and and sadly, it's a point that is not well known among healthcare providers, mental health providers, and even everyday citizens. So thoughts of death are actually quite common, uh, and both suicidal thoughts and thoughts of death. And I don't mean that the type of thoughts where you're planning for your funeral arrangements or things like that or, or doing a, a will. What I mean is when someone says to themselves, wow, I wish I could just fall asleep and not wake up, or I wish I just could just go to sleep for a week. It's an escape-oriented mindset. Again, it's trying to avoid dealing with something that is very overwhelming, something very painful, whether that's emotional pain or physical pain. And that's what those death thoughts and suicidal thoughts have in common, is that uh, they are escape-oriented mindsets. Where they're different, however, is it's much more common for people to have those death thoughts. It's sometimes called morbid thoughts, uh, or they are sometimes called morbid thoughts. And they're not very high risk. So people don't reliably, consistently have those thoughts and then engage in suicidal behaviors or suicide attempts. But those thoughts about death can grow into suicidal thoughts. So let me use a quick example. So I might have just lost my job, and now I'm thinking, oh my goodness, how am I going to uh, support my family? How will I uh, pay my bills? How will, what's gonna happen to us in life? And I might think to myself, wow, I wish I could just escape all of this. I wish we could just um, all go to another country and be okay or another place. Or maybe if I fell asleep, I could avoid having to deal with this. Well, that's the death thoughts. But when it becomes suicidal thoughts is when I see myself playing a role in facilitating my death uh, or enacting my death. So it, it sort of gets from, wow, I wish I could just go away for a long time and escape this to hmm, maybe I can make myself go away for a long time. So it sounds like a subtlety and a nuance, but it really does make an immense difference uh, as to whether someone's experiencing those death thoughts versus suicidal thoughts. Again, the suicidal thoughts are associated with higher risk and the death thoughts are, are lower risk. But again, they can grow into suicidal thoughts. If someone is going down that path of suicidal thoughts, um, what are some of the exit ramps that they can use to get off that road? What are I, I know there's a, you know, after national legislation was passed and we passed it here in the state of Arkansas, you can, you know, call the 988 um, number and that'll direct you to some resources to where you can get some help. Um, but just 
maybe for some of this listening and is maybe going down that that road uh, of suicidal thoughts what are some of the exit ramps that they can take to get to the help that they need and what are some things they can do for themselves to help uh, get to where they they can get out of that thought pattern so what's tough about this is that uh, about 80% of people who have suicidal thoughts will show some sort of signs. So either they will seem uh, different, they will ultimately seem different than themselves. So whether that is more withdrawn, uh, whether they are less social, less talkative, whether their mood, the way their facial expressions look, their emotions are kind of uh, more down or even more irritable. 80% will show signs, uh, and those signs could even be talking about it, saying things like, well, I think I'll go home and drink my dinner, or, well, you know, that's going to be a terrible situation next week, but it doesn't matter anyway. I won't I won't be here to, to see it, or, or things like that that suggest a foreshortened future. 80% of, of people who are suicidal will, will show that, but about 20% were never going to see signs. Uh, and this is important. The people who will never see signs, it's because they escalate so quickly or they are absolutely determined to die and they don't want any help. They don't want anyone to stop them. And so because there is an impulsive aspect to suicide, it makes it harder for us to see the signs. And also, to your question, makes it harder for us to help ourselves. Um, the mindset of being suicidal is characterized by racing thoughts, very negative thoughts, uh, negative emotions, again, whether that's anxiety, depression, irritability, frustration, feeling hopeless, helpless, worthless, powerless, feeling like you are a burden to others. So all of those feelings don't typically facilitate uh, positive help-seeking behavior. And when all of those emotions and thoughts are churning, uh, oftentimes our bodies get worked up too. So when we think about the body's stress response and adrenaline and uh, the fight or flight response, that's often uh, kicked in or turned on. And that can make it very challenging to make logical, rational decisions. So love what you've suggested, uh, Mr. Hammer, which is call 988. We've been working for over a decade on getting 988 to be the new suicide and crisis lifeline, okay. uh, sort of comparable to 911. All right, but hey, also, uh, uh, let me let me interrupt you. Uh, we'll come back sure. on that. I gotta I gotta take a break. I gotta see the schedule, and we'll Perfect. be back here to the Dave Ellsworth show in just a minute. My my guest right now is Dr. Kent Corso. Uh, if you want to go up there, look him up on you know on Facebook or you know go Google him. He'll pull up, and you can see some of his credentials. That makes him the expert to be on the Dave Ellswick show to be talking about suicide. September being Suicide Awareness Month. We'll be back in just a minute with Dr. Corso. Welcome back to the Dave Ellswick Show. This is State Senator Kim Hammer filling in for Dave, and uh, I have Dr. Kent Corso joining us here on the Dave Ellswick Show. It is September, which is uh, Suicide Awareness Month, and so we are trying to dedicate a little time here on the Dave Ellswick Show to talk about the subject of suicide. Granted, it's not a comfortable topic to be talking about. You may not even feel it applies or is applicable to you, uh, but in reality, uh, it probably touches more of us than we realize, and if things don't get under control, it probably will reach out 
and touch us in a way, uh, either directly or indirectly, that we will know somebody. Ken, let me ask you, uh, as far as the percentage of people that are touched by suicide in America, what percentage of people are actually touched by it, either through uh, not those that commit it, but those that are left behind to survive the act itself or know somebody that has been touched by, by suicide? Are there any statistics out there? Sure, there are some statistics showing that uh, for every person who dies by suicide, there are upwards of 35 people who have attempted. And so when you think about this, uh, even though we talk about having about 48,000 suicides per year in America, there are many, many people who have thought of it, many uh, what we call loss survivors. Um, and that is when someone you know or love is, dies by suicide. Uh, we also have attempt survivors, and those uh, are people who uh, those are people who attempt and live through it. Um, when we look at statistics of how many people are um, affected by suicide, there's some research that shows that six people are affected for every suicide death. So I'm not a mathematical wizard, but uh, 48,000 times uh, six would be roughly uh, 300,000 people every year are affected by by uh, suicide so let me ask you this question then and and i've just got a random list of questions and we're trying to plug them in as we go can a person ever get out of it once they've experienced it you know it's like alcoholics you know if somebody's alcoholic or they're a drug user uh, they realize they got a problem they go get the therapy they go get the help that they need they get it under control in their life but one of the things they say is that you always live with it, always having to be on guard. Is it the same thing for people that have experienced suicide? And what if somebody has attempted it um, and they've re- they've recovered from the moment? What are the things they have to do in order to prevent it in the future? So it, it doesn't necessarily work like other uh, disorders, uh, things like depression, things like uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, or things like alcoholism. Uh, what we know is that if we do not address the suicide risk, it does progress over time. But if someone does seek treatment, it can be highly effective. Some of the best research on treating suicide and suicide attempts has shown that if we give a very high quality form of treatment, we can reduce attempts by 76%. Now, just to put that into context, when we think of CPR, right, if someone uh, loses consciousness and, and we try to do CPR, the effectiveness of CPR is about 30 to 35%. So consider that, our, that, that many people in our community know CPR and are, and are ready to try to use it, even if it's just a, a citizen operating under the good law. But when it comes to suicide, treatments can be up to 76% effective. So that gives you the sense of how, if more people learn how to help with the problem, how uh, what kind of a dent we can make in this issue. Uh, one other piece here to answer your question, Senator Hammer, is that most people who attempt suicide and live will never attempt again. And there's this experience they have where when they either wake up in the hospital room and realize they had, they had attempted suicide and lived, or whether they wake up wherever they attempted suicide. Some, some people attempt and live through it and don't seek medical attention. So they sort of think to themselves, wow, I'm, I'm really grateful to be alive. I can't believe I did that. That was a, I don't really want to die. 
Um, so, so it is something that people can improve upon. It's not necessarily something that they will battle uh, and struggle and feel the tension with their entire lives. And I was going to ask you that question. What is the, based on your experience and people that you've worked with, consulted with, the the last thought that goes through a person's mind um, before they commit suicide, if they have survived that attempt and come back to talk about it, what what are the last thoughts that went through their mind, and then what are the first thoughts that come through their mind once they realize they survived it? Hit on that a little deeper, if you would. Sure. I, I, so I, I can certainly share a personal story recently that's very recent, um, but, but the, we don't know what those last thoughts are specifically, but what we do know is that they tend to be... Um, again, hopelessness, helplessness, feeling like this is the only answer, like there are no other options they have except to end it because their problems are just uh, insurmountable. So that, those are the thoughts that tend to be right before they die. And then again, the thoughts when they come to, sometimes it's, thank God I'm alive. Uh, so sometimes it's very uh, faith-based or God-centric. Um, other times there is a small um, percentage of people who will wake up and say, dang, I'm so worthless, I couldn't even kill myself. And that's, again, a very small percentage of, of people, and they tend to be suicidal chronically. Um, just just a personal story. So I, I had a friend who uh, texted me uh, about two weeks ago. He's in the process of killing himself. He had uh, locked himself in his, in his garage, uh, closed it, turned on the car, opened the windows, and was revving the engine. And I uh, called him immediately when I saw the text, and I talked to him, and he had become sleepy already because of the carbon monoxide. And just talking to him, trying to walk him through, go ahead and turn off the ignition, turn off the ignition, prompting him, trying to encourage him. One of the things that I had said to him was, if this is really the right decision for you, you don't have to make it today. You can make it any day this month, any day this year. But tonight, let's make a different decision. Uh, and ultimately, I was able to talk him through turning off the car, escaping the garage, getting fresh air. Uh, and he lived. And the, the following day, he, he uh, texted me and we spoke. And he said, I'd like to thank you for, for what you did last night. Uh, I will never do that again. I will never. That was the dumbest thing I could have done. I, I will absolutely find any other solution uh, but that one. So, it, 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 again, it, it, it's a clear example of, of what we know from the research, which is that people who are suicidal don't really want to die. Okay. They just want out of their circumstance. All right. Got to interrupt you. We got to take a hard break. We'll come back after this. We'll pick up with that story. And then I want to talk about people who deal with survivors, not them themselves, but they're the survivors that have to deal with it. Come back in a minute. Welcome back to the Dave Ellsworth Show. This is State Senator Kim Hammer filling in for Dave Hoovs-Hoss. I've got uh, Kent Corso, Dr. Kent Corso, uh, on the line with me. We're talking about suicide prevention or suicide awareness, if you would. Month of September set aside to recognize that. So I appreciate you, Dr. Corso, uh, taking time out to join here on the Dave Ellsworth Show. So for those that... Um, you know, like your friend, had you not received the call, had he not got the intervention that he needed in order to get out of that situation, and uh, thank God that he realized that's not a pathway, a deterrent for the next time around, so that's a good experience. But let's just say that somebody walked in and found him, and it hadn't turned out so well. The survivors of those that 
commit suicide. Talk about what they experience and talk about the help that they need to get and some of the issues that they experience being the survivor of someone that committed suicide. So the we call those survivors loss survivors or suicide loss survivors, and they deal with a whole host of baggage and uh, everything from the stigma that people already have for suicide. Now that sort of a stain or stigma is left on their family. If there are children. Uh, those children are now at a slightly higher risk for suicide themselves, having a parent who died by suicide. There are uh, there's the burden of the of the surviving parent having to explain to their children, uh, even one's own parents. So the if if the person who died by suicide, their parent uh, has to deal with the death of their child and question what did I do wrong. So all of those loved ones who survive a suicide question. They question what could we have done differently, and sometimes they blame themselves if if maybe there was some discord within the family, within the marriage. Uh, they'll blame themselves, and 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 that's sort of emotional and mental health um, consequences that they don't need either. So there's just a trail of damage that that uh, suicide leaves for the survived survivors. I know sometimes there are notes that are left. Um anything regarding notes or messages that are left as to significance in in what's left in those notes and I, I know that's kind of just a maybe a bizarre question but i always wonder about somebody that leaves a note for somebody how does that play into what the person was thinking up to the time they committed suicide and how does a family member deal with a note that is left and maybe that's just too impossible of a question to answer but i just want to put it out there anyway yeah, I think it's an interesting question. There, I think many people feel cheated, and so, so I'll elaborate. Let's pretend that that my wife killed herself, so and left me a note. So let me get this straight: you took the time to write a note, but you couldn't take the time to talk to me about what you were experiencing, and now I'm left with the aftermath, that feels really unfair. So I think oftentimes uh, when a note is left, on one hand, there's there's one thought process or, or line of thinking that says, okay, well, at least it helps explain why the person did it, and it helps the loved ones. Uh, maybe it softens the blow a bit because they have some sense of what the thought process was that drove the person to end their lives. On the other hand, there's also this experience of, well, now I'm left holding all the, the baggage, and, and you took the time to do that, but you couldn't take the time to reach out to me uh, so I could help you, so I could prevent this. So I think it's probably a mixed bag. All right. So you mentioned a while ago some of the indicators of what, you know, suicide might be presenting it as, you know, whether it's depression, change in a personality, et cetera. You know, in, in a normal course of a day, a person could, you know, possibly present. Yesterday, I'll be honest with you, it was, a, was kind of a rough day for me. Uh, somebody looked at me in a snapshot of time. They might have said, hmm, I wonder if Kim is. And how do you get into that conversation with somebody, which, by the way, I wasn't. Uh, but how do you get into that conversation with somebody knowing the awkwardness that maybe you just misread the person and you don't want to, you know, you don't want to prejudge them based on what you might see in a snapshot of time and and how do you just get into that conversation with a person without it being awkward 
So I don't know that we can do that. So it depends on your relationship with the person. Uh, expect it to be an awkward conversation period. Um, and that often helps break down the barriers to people asking the question. When we look over the last 50 years of suicide research, we've never seen a time where we've reduced the suicide rate even by let's say 20% and then sustained that lower rate year after year. One of the reasons why is because people don't ask the question. They, they uh, sort of balk at the awkwardness, they retreat, and so just accept that it will be an awkward conversation. Uh, for some people say, would you rather deal with the awkwardness of asking the question and saying, hey, are you thinking of killing yourself or ending your life? Or would you rather deal with the guilt uh, that if that person dies that you could have been a part of the solution? Uh, so, so one of the best ways to start the conversation is to make an observation, uh, just a personalized observation. Again, Senator Hammer, you were not suicidal yesterday, but let's just pretend I was working beside you and noticed your demeanor was different. I said, hey, sir, you don't seem like yourself. Something seems different. So just a general comment, because what that does is it communicates to the person that you care and that you are paying attention to them so that when you follow up with a question like, I know this might sound odd, sir, but are you thinking of killing yourself or ending your life? When we, we know from the research that we have to ask that direct question. So if we make an observation first, just a general one, it can help sort of open up the conversation. It's still going to be awkward. But people, if you ask how are you doing, how are you, we're so used to saying fine or great, we don't really tell people how we're feeling. So by asking the question directly, it lets them know exactly what you're interested in and that you are willing to hear their answer, whatever that might be. Thus, the importance of removing the stigma, because sometimes when you ask somebody that question, the thought process of being judgmental uh, is introduced into the conversation, and that's that should not be the intent at all, or that you're questioning the person's stability necessarily, even though that you are. But, again, if you tap dance around the subject matter and you just don't come straight out, then then you may be avoiding – who knows, you may be even making it worse. Maybe that person would be – you know, well, I need to hide my actions. I need to be a better actor. I need to be uh, where people won't notice so I can finish what I'm thinking about starting. So removing the stigma is a big contributor to being able to ask that question directly without fear of repercussions, misreading somebody, or uh, anything else. Is that is that a fair assessment? That's a fair assessment. Something else is we're never going to make it worse. So don't, don't ever be afraid of asking, uh, for the listeners out there, don't ever be afraid of asking because you think you might trigger someone. That's not how it works. There's no research that shows when we ask that question, it's going to make someone think of suicide or it's going to make a suicidal person worse. Um, and, and one other thing, just to back up, if someone kills themselves, that's not my fault. That's when someone chooses to end their lives, that is their their decision. And so even though some people may blame themselves, we do want to, to make sure it's clear that we can't save everybody. If someone truly wants to die, they're going to do it. So, so we have to be careful not to fall into this trap that um, we can save everybody and, and that uh, we're going to reduce the suicide rate to zero or, or that if someone killed themselves that, that I, you know, I could have saved them. Well, you, maybe you could have been a part of the solution, but I wouldn't convince yourself that, that you could have saved them. The are, are we, in comparison to other nations, are we winning the battle of suicide? Are we, are we in the middle of the pack? Where are we in the pack? 
Yeah, so we're not doing great. Um, uh, and, and if we're talking about Arkansas specifically, um, Arkansas is doing slightly worse than the U.S. as a whole. Um, we do know suicide is worse in rural areas. One of the things that makes suicide uh, higher in the United States than comparable nations is our access to firearms. Now, this is not, I want to be clear, this is not some sort of a, a slam against the Second Amendment. In fact, to, to say that it's silly for people to say, well, you either have to love suicide prevention or love firearms, but you can't love both, and that's hogwash. You can you can love uh, the Second Amendment and love suicide prevention. Um, this is not an all-or-nothing uh, type of solution, but it is a fact that people use whatever they have available to them, and since firearms are highly lethal, when those happen to be available, and they, they do tend to be um, more firearm owners in rural areas, um, when they do happen to be available, that makes them more likely to be used. It's just that simple. Um, and so, uh, what, for example, when we talk to people who have survived a firearm attempt, 24% made the decision to do it within five minutes. And 70% of people who have attempted suicide by firearm and survived made the decision in 60 minutes. So what we're really talking about is delaying access uh, when people are upset, when they are depressed, when they are having some life stressors, delaying their access to firearms. Even just buying one hour could potentially reduce the firearm suicides by 70%. And, and just to be clear, the number of, su or the percentage of suicides annually that are done by firearms in the U.S. are about 70%. So it is by far people choose to kill themselves all right you broke up just there just as you were giving the percentage make that statement again if you would sure so the number one way people kill themselves in the u.s is by firearms accounting for 53 percent of suicides in america all right and that was one question and we'll get it after the break but let me go ahead and get it get it out there the methods of which people use to commit suicide uh, is there are there sorry bad english is there any are there any statistics out there that can show why people pick the method that they do i know what you're saying about time delay and access and everything but you know somebody jumping off a building somebody jumping off a bridge somebody uh doing an overdose somebody you know whatever methodology it is that they're choosing is there any rationale is there any alignment to the fact between the time they th they make the decision to commit suicide and the method that they choose you said your friend a while ago got inside the car you know and and, and it was going to be you know death by uh you know by carbon monoxide what is it that's in somebody's head when it comes to the choice that they're going to make we'll come back after break here on the dave ellswick show welcome back to the dave ellswick show this is kim hammerstay senator hosting for dave today who is out i've got dr kent corso subject is talking about suicide with september being uh, suicide awareness month so dr corso where i left off was about the method of the choice that people make as far as what they're going to use as their method of committing suicide. His, uh, what, what does data or information show as far as why people pick the method that they do? There are a variety of reasons people pick the method they do, but aside from the 20% where it happens very, very quickly, uh, it's a highly personalized decision. So, for example, I mentioned in an earlier segment today of a friend of mine who was trying to uh, kill himself via carbon monoxide in his car. 
in his garage. His rationale was it would be a very peaceful way to go, so no pain. Other people uh, think about the cleanup of their body, and so they, they choose a certain method because they don't want their loved ones to either have to clean it up or what they know that someone will find them so sometimes they choose a method and a setting so that their loved ones don't find them um, so, so it, there are there is a myriad of reasons but they tend to be highly personalized for those who are thinking about it for a while in advance and, and it does include oftentimes the least pain or suffering the and I want to emphasize again that people can call 988. That's the recognized uh, national number. If you call that number, they'll get you to the Arkansas resources based on where you live. Do you know, and I'm asking because I don't know, so I'm asking you, for, for somebody that needs help because somebody has committed suicide, is that a number that they can call? Or what about somebody that has experienced the death of a loved one by suicide? Where do they go and what are the resources they can get access to? So anyone can call 988. It's the suicide and crisis lifeline. So anyone can call that at any time. And if they cannot help you, they will refer you to other folks. If you have survived the death of a loved one, one online resource that's helpful is suicidology.org. Um, and, and I'm sure we can post that afterwards because suicidology is, is not a, a term most people typically uh, spell. <laughs> That, we'll get that up. Uh, well, Dave will probably get it up on his, but I'll get it up on my website, thekimhammershow.com. Heard Saturday noon until 1 here on 101 FM or on a podcast. So I'll make sure to get that up on my website, if nothing else, and people can go up there and check that out. Are there organizations out there that uh, people, they, they scam people? I mean, you know, people like to take advantage of other people when they're going through a hard time, uh, even the one that may be thinking about suicide. Are there organizations or groups out there that, uh, you know, have been branded as scammers? that you would care to make people aware of or uh, none, none out there that you know of? Um, I don't know about scammers, but what I would say is two very reputable organizations are uh, AAS, the American Association of Suicidology, and that's, again, suicidology.org. The other organization is AFSP, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and that's AFSP.org. So I'd, I'd point people in the direction of those two resources. Um, certainly, SAMHSA, you know, the HHS, the Health and Human Services Department has some resources. The CDC and your community mental health clinic or hospital will definitely have some helpful resources that wouldn't be scamming. Okay. Uh, I want to get you back on and uh, probably do one of my shows the next couple of weeks, and I'll try to coordinate with you because I'm down to like three minutes. But some other things I'd like to get back on and talk about is that when somebody goes out and commits a crime, then they commit suicide. Is that part of their suicide pack? That's one thing I'd like to get you back on to talk about because we see that a lot where somebody will go into a, you know, whatever situation. They'll, they'll kill a bunch of people like school shootings or businesses. They end up taking their life. Did they go in with that thought process in mind or once they got in there and they did their deed, they realized there was no way out and then they decided to take their life? Uh, different age populations and also different culture populations and the rates among the different cultures uh, is you know are there are there things that make one culture uh, maybe more inclined to think about suicide above the other and what's contributing to that the, I do want to finish and so I'd like to have you back on just talk about some other subjects on this but let me let me finish on this note because I think it's important uh, I feel that my faith is a strong component in my life to help me battle against a lot of things honestly I've never been suicidal I think about death because I 
deal with death in the role that I serve in, you know, as a chaplain and also a pastor. It's just part of life, you know, do a lot of funerals. doesn't make me suicidal. I think about it. But as far as a faith component contributing to a person's ability to ward off or fight suicidal thoughts or somebody that maybe is recovering from somebody having committed suicide, in a minute or a minute and a half, talk about the faith component being it valuable or of no value at all. Sure. So the the key distinction here is whether or not the person is of faith to begin with. If someone's an atheist uh, or an agnostic, faith is probably not going to be very helpful. Uh, however, among those who are practicing a particular faith, and we're mainly talking Judeo-Christian, although the studies have been done in other faiths, faith is a strength. It is a resource that reduces one's risk. It can increase one's outcomes with everything from depression and anxiety anxiety to suicidal thinking. So without a doubt, if someone uh, does have a faith-based background or that is one of their coping tools, it can be very effective as a coping tool. Um, One other lens that the research shows is that it's a deterrent. So people in a, again, Judeo-Christian background may say, you know what, I don't want to go to hell. So that's the only thing keeping me alive. And and it, it happens to work that over time, it will give them a chance to find other coping strategies and, and emerge from their dark place. All right. And I'll get you back on. I want to talk deeper about how we compare to other nations, what other nations are doing or other parts of the you know, nation, our nation, not just like nations outside America, but within the nation, what other states are doing that are having better results that maybe we need to be taking a look at doing ourselves. Um, and then just a few other things. So I, I just really want to say I appreciate you being on the show today. I hope it does raise awareness. I hope that people have had the, some of their questions answered. And I'll look forward to getting you back on along with a few other experts. Any final thoughts be before we finish up for the day? The only thing I'd say is if you are struggling, help is available and it works. And I appreciate the opportunity to be on the show, sir. All right. Thank you very much. Do you mind if I put your contact information up on my website or uh, ways that people Please can do. contact you? Okay. All right. Sure. I'll, I'll get that up on the KimHammerShow.com website and you can reach out. Uh, he's been on several times. I can speak from uh, just observing uh, the way in which he presents information, uh, a good resource for you to have, Dr. Kent Corso. Thank you very much. This is Kim Hammer, State Senator, filling in for Dave Ellswick, who is off today. I'll be back on next week one day to fill in for him. I hope that uh, the show will be rewarding for you to listen to. And again, I appreciate you listening today. I host a show every Saturday at the KimHammerShow.com heard heard here on 101.1 FM, The Answer, from noon until 1, or you can pick it up on the podcast platforms. Again, thank you for listening to the Dave Ellswick Show, and uh, I hope you have a great rest of the day. Remember, 988 is the number to call. If you're having thoughts, you know somebody that's uh, maybe actively looking to do it, or you're one that has survived somebody that did it, you need help to resources, call 988. Have a great day.